0: Every week, we interview senior revenue professionals and share their stories and insights on how they leverage revenue intelligence to drive success and win their market.
1: You'll hear how modern go-to-market teams win as a team, close revenue with critical deal insight, and execute their strategic initiatives, plus all the challenges that come along with it.
0: Hey everybody, I hope you had a fantastic weekend. Hopefully you got to recharge, hang out with friends and family. And maybe even get outside for a little bit. So, for this week's episode, we're gonna replay a recent webinar that we hosted titled Five Powerful Strategies for Reducing Churn. The reason why is customer retention has changed dramatically in the last few months. And as a result, the question that a lot of sales leaders are asking themselves is how do I protect my customer base? So, what we have is three fantastic speakers, they're gonna share five techniques that they use to protect their customer base and uncover growth opportunities. You're going to hear from Nick Meta, the CEO of Gainsight, Sam Kennedy, Director of Enterprise Customer Success here at Gong, and Chris Orlob, the Director of Sales for Existing Accounts also here at Gong. So let's go ahead and dive right into it. Today, we're going to talk about five powerful strategies for reducing churn. We're going to learn how to protect your current customer base and find some opportunities for future growth. Now, before we dive into the table of contents, let's do a quick round of introductions. We have Nick Mehta. Meta. You are the CEO of Gainsight. Nick, do you want to say hello? Maybe a fun fact if you've got one?
2: Hello, everyone. Great to see you. Uh, fun fact, I would say I have been to Vegas at least 75 times, and I've never left with making money. I've never made money. So therefore, there's somebody, in by statistics, somebody has been to Vegas 75 times in a row and has made money every time they balance me out in the universe. So I need to find that person.
0: (laughs) I can appreciate your persistence and your dedication. Uh, we also have Chris Orlob who is our director of sales here at Gong working on existing accounts. Chris, you want to say hi, quick intro.
3: Yeah, really happy to be here. I, uh, this used to be my routine as far as doing Gong webinars go back uh, when I used to look after product marketing and it's actually, I think it's been, or this is the
0: first webinar I've been on in like pretty close to a year now, so really excited to be back. And I like Nick. I like Chris. I saved the best for last. (laughs) Sam Kennedy is our Director of Enterprise CS here at Gong, and also one of the original Gongsters. I think, Sam, aren't you like employee like 10 in the States? You were super early.
1: I think actually it was uh, lower than that. I think I joined right after Chris, and it was maybe like five, six Uh, in a windowless basement. So we've we've seen a lot.
0: Fantastic, well, let's get into our agenda for today. All right,
2: well, (laughs) uh, thank you so much. Really appreciate the team at Gong uh, bringing me on here and and thanks to all of you for watching. So Nick Mehta, CEO of Gainsight. If you haven't met me before, I pretty much talk about customer success all the time. Uh, That's uh, what we do at Gainsight is build software to help companies scale their customer success, drive better adoption, drive better retention and expansion. And given that, um, I end up seeing a lot of data about what's happening in the world of managing existing customers. I'm really excited to be here because I think that management of existing customers is a team sport between the CSMs and the salespeople driving better success for your customers and more growth in the process. And so I'm going to share is a little bit of data about what we've seen in terms of the downturn and how people have shifted their focus on managing customers. And just like in our personal lives, things have shifted a lot and actually continue to shift really quickly. So I'm going to dive right in. So, um, I think we, it's actually crazy to think back to like mid March and think it feels like 100 years ago, but it does, I think, for all of us, right? And obviously, we've gone through so many different phases of the world uh, between then and now. Um, and I think from a business perspective, you know, even though our jobs probably felt hard before uh, COVID, um, they definitely felt like smooth sailing in hindsight. And I think a lot of us ended up Kind of in the for a fork in the road um, in mid March about what we're going to do, and a lot of CEOs in particular had to make decisions on what are we going to do to pivot to this new world. And I think we're continuing to all make those decisions now as the world changes. Um, some of those decisions were very tactical, like how do we switch to a work from home environment, and how do I deal with my completely out of control hair with no haircut, as I'm kind of looks like that dog right there on the left. Um, but um, some of the decisions were about how do we make sure our businesses survive. And so what I want to share with you is I think. The world shifted from kind of survival, you know, March, April, to now what we think of as kind of thriving. How do we all thrive in this new world? And we think a big part of it is driving more sales from customers. And that's why we're excited to have a conversation today with the team at Gong. So I think everyone knows we went through this process, every company did, of doing your scenario planning. I'm sure your company had all hands about the V-shaped plan and the U-shaped plan and the L-shaped plan. And we all did that planning and some of that planning depended heavily on what's going to happen to our customers are they going to stay with us are they going to shrink are they going to grow and um you know a lot of us did some kind of introspection soul searching analysis to try to make some predictions about what's going to happen and for at site, what we realized was a lot there's going to be a lot more focus on existing customers because of the downturn because at the end of the day new sales are slowing down for most companies cuz you know in the in world of uncertainty Customers tend to do less new stuff, but they wanna double down on what they're doing with their existing vendors. So we wrote a ton of advice about what does this mean for sales leaders and customer success leaders and how do you forecast churn and how do you handle downsell requests? How do you handle payment delay requests? And so lots of great stuff that's on our website. And we also try to spend a little bit of time on our side saying how can we help during these tough times? So we actually uh, took some of our training that we do for customer success people in terms of how to do customer success And made it free so people trying to break into the profession if they were laid off from hotels or restaurants or whatever they can come into all of our companies um and then we actually ourselves tried to try to thrive by switching all of our marketing to virtual i'm sure many of you did the same thing we ended up posting a really big event 22,000 people called pulse everywhere which is the virtual version of the event we normally do in san francisco um but one of the things i want to share is what we heard from a lot of companies about what they were doing As they went through this kind of pivot. And so we launched a survey in mid March, and then we did the same survey uh, about a week ago. Um, Same people, we surveyed publicly traded SaaS companies and late stage private um, tech companies. And we basically asked them, what are you doing about your customers given the downturn? And what I'm going to share with you is kind of what people thought in March versus what they think now. So really interesting to see the evolution of this uh, response. So in March, um, we published a blog post about this you can find online very quickly everyone was interested in retention like fun fact we sent the survey out and like in two hours later we had like 50 percent people responding like and it was which is very unusual for a survey everyone had wanted to know what everyone else was going to see about retention and what we what people thought was retention was going to uh, have a challenge people are going to see spikes in churn even the very sticky businesses were going to see a spike of three four five percentage points but some companies selling to SMBs and uh, challenge verticals that were really affected by the crisis, we're going to see double-digit in- increases in churn. So a lot of expectation of churn. Even companies that have very enterprise-oriented businesses were expecting an uptick in churn. Um, in, the churn was going to be expected to be the most for companies selling to small businesses. Most people thought churn was going to show up the most in downsells, meaning people not uh, cutting their contract altogether but just shrinking their spend with the vendor. And we'll talk more about that later. You know, like I said, companies that were selling into verticals that were affected, naturally were expecting a lot of churn. Um, people also thought that their expansion rates would go down. I'm going to talk about what we saw in the May survey. It's a little bit better, but people thought that not only would gross retention go down because more customers would shrink their contracts, but net retention would go down even more because their upsellability would be capped. That's what they thought. Uh, number eight, um, everyone said, given all that, we got to focus on churn prevention um, and put a lot of resources into it. Um, and because of that, although some companies did lay off people in customer success, it seems that, that the layoffs were more concentrated into other parts of their business versus the CS area, at least from what we saw. And then finally, a lot of companies basically implement a big playbook of, you know, how do we forecast churn? How do we understand what the effect of each customer is from COVID-19 and how do we get closer to our customers? So a lot of people did stuff in March and April around this playbook, um, but that was three months ago. So a lot happened since then. Um, and so I'll share with you what we saw in this most recent survey that we put out just about a week and a half ago. So in this survey, we sent send it out to the same people. And I'd say the, the the general theme is that people don't think the the world is as bad as they thought it was gonna be. Um, so may, and maybe that's how we all feel in general. Although I think all of us know that There could be another twist or turn in the road. It wasn't a dead end, right? And a lot of companies have figured out in some ways how to thrive through this. And so in this survey, that theme of thrive is what really showed up the most. And I think it fits with this idea we're going to talk about, about how do we sell more to our customers? How do we align better to our customer needs? The details are what I'm going to share with you on our blog post on our website. But the high-level takeaways, number one, churn went up because of COVID-19, but not as much as people thought. So if you look at the blue bar, is what people thought in March, the orange bar is what they think in May. Um, And so you can see that if you sell to small customers, less than $5,000 contracts, your expectations on churn are still high, a lot higher than pre-COVID-19. So, you know, their expectation is, we have 15 and a half points more of churn than we would have pre-COVID-19, so that's a lot. But that's still not as bad as it was in March. Um, And if you look at companies selling into the mid-market, so $5,000 to $100,000 contracts or enterprise, $100,000 or higher, in general, the expectations on the increase of churn have gone down. But across the board, you can see that people are still expecting an increase in churn versus the pre-COVID-19 plan. So we're all kind of uh, suffering from some level of a headwind in our business, but the headwind isn't as big as we would have thought uh, going back to March. Um, Same thing is true about net retention, but what you can see is net retention isn't as bad as people thought it would be in March. There's a big drop between what people thought in March versus what they're seeing now. It's still worse than it was pre-COVID-19. So as an example, if you're an enterprise-oriented business, you're still seeing net retention 5.9 points worse than pre-COVID-19. But you were expecting it to be 10 points worse, right? So what that means is people are selling more to their installed base, they're seeing more upsell. We'll talk more about this with the group on the panel. Um, In general, companies uh, seems like they're not shrinking their CS teams are very consistent with what we saw in March. That part of the survey is very similar. So there's some companies that shrunk, but not that many. Most people actually kept it or actually grew it. And then when we ask people rank your initiatives, um, you know, rank, you know, preventing churn, driving more upsell, getting new logos, what you can see is new logo sales, I think, um, continue to be challenged for most businesses. That's the reality. Um, But because of that, people are really doubling down on understanding your customers, getting them to stay with you, forecasting retention, driving more adoption, and then through that, getting more upsell. And that's, I think, in some ways, the uh, outline of the webinar and what we're going to talk about. So we ask people in kind of open-ended fashion, free free text, what are you doing about it? What new initiatives have you launched since COVID-19 to try to drive more retention, drive more expansion, drive more adoption? And the list honestly looks a lot like the list people have been working on for a long time. I emailed a friend of mine who's the CEO of a late stage SaaS company. I said, what are you doing differently with COVID-19? He said, we're doing the things that we've always done, uh, but we're just doing them better now. And we're doing them, the things we should have always been doing, we're actually doing, right? So whether that's managing customer risk, you know, managing relationships in my account, mapping out you know, where we're strong, where we're weak, finding new relationships. Again, look at that outline of what we're going to cover. People are actually doing it people are spending more time on automation, more time on health scoring. So, you know, I think we're all doing the things we knew we should have always been doing. One of a CEO I talked to uh a week ago said, "We finally have the time to invest in the things that we need to do structurally. You know, when we were in the go-go days, we didn't have that time. Now we've got that time." So, people are using the time to kind of get better. We also we also asked them what are some new themes, things they're worried about. And the two things they're worried about um and again, I think we'll talk about both of these. Number one is customers have shifted from, hey, this is cool technology. How do I do more? To what's the real value of this technology? So the idea that it's not just about getting your customers to adopt your product, it's about quantifying the value of your product. That's a hot topic in customer success and something that's coming up. And then that headwind of downsells continues because at the end of the day, every company is saying we can't waste money. So if we bought five modules from a vendor, we're using three. Let's renew three. If we have 200 seats, we're using 150, let's renew 150. And that shows up as churn in your business and a headwind to growth. So that's showing up more and more. What I hear when I talk to CEOs and leaders right now is that they're a little bit at a quandary because they realize that the world is reopening, right? They see you know, restaurants are open and people are going out and that's great. But I think all of us know that it could easily snap back in a heartbeat, right? We, we're all a little bit worried. And so the question people are wrestling with is, Do I go hire a bunch of people right now and try to scale up? Or do I kind of be conservative? And I think it's a kind of a no-win situation because if you're conservative, you'll miss out on the growth. If you hire a bunch of people, you might have to lay them off later on. And so a lot of people are trying to figure out, how do I do things more scalably? How do I do more automation? How do I do a better job of planning across my team to navigate this really hard uh, challenge? And you can read more about this on our website. I wrote about it. At the end of the day, obviously, I'm the most biased person in the world about this, but I do think that your ability to thrive depends on your customer success and driving better coordination between account management and CS and and, and what we'll cover in this webinar. Uh, I did a um, session a couple weeks ago with Credit Suisse, which is a big investment bank. They had a lot of their money money management clients, all the asset managers, hedge hedge funds on, and they summarized the event by saying, uh, retention is the new growth. And I think that's a good summary of what we're going to talk about here. It's how do we drive growth through retention? So that's the end of my intro. We're going to talk more in the panel. But if you want to learn more, um, obviously check out our website. And we we just wrote a new book on customer success. You can see in the background, and you can get a free copy if you go to gamesite.com slash book. With that, I'm gonna turn it back to my fellow panelists.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Nick. Uh we had a question from Michelle. I, I was I was loving the data. I might have missed it as well, but she was wondering. How many customers were surveyed to capture this data? And then was there any specific verticals? Yeah,
2: so it was it was late stage and public SaaS companies. Um, so everyone for probably about 50 million in revenue and higher. That sample size was about 100 people that we surveyed because there's not that many of those companies. And we got about 50 responses. So if you're in the survey business, that's quite a good response rate
0: awesome that's great uh chris and sam any anything to add to that anything kind of surprising to you guys or like hey yeah this is what we're working on as well
3: well i i think one of the things that stood out tactically is having a task force dedicated to documenting business value for all renewals renewals over a hundred thousand bucks uh oh, no. we we did something similar it, it didn't come in the form of a task force and it, it actually segues nicely into what we're just about to talk about uh Devin, which uh, is very similar to selling to value, which is selling to power. And one of the ways that you need to sell to power when it comes to renewals or upsells or anything post sale or pre-sale, well, in this case, just post sale is documenting that success. Um, so so that was probably the that that was the biggest thing that stood out and probably because it's one of the most recent things things you said to there.
1: I think a lot stood out, um, and, and a lot of parallels to, to what we've been doing on the post-sales team at Gong as well. Um, really resonated that we're we're doing a lot of the same uh, the same thing that I think you saw in your survey, where we're not doing anything massively different, just a lot of these things that we always meant to do differently and more of and better, and and now we're uh, we have a, a driving force to actually do more of those things and do them more quickly.
3: So um, I, I think you know when you look at this ID and engage the new economic buyer, I think historically, you know, three to five months from now, I think some of the more savvy post-sale people would be like, oh, this totally makes sense that this is a topic for post-sale because they get it. I think a lot of people would be like, why are we talking about this? This is like a sales concept. And, and I think the reason this is even more relevant to talk about like selling to power uh, for retention is exactly what you talked about, Nick. Which is uh, retention is the new growth. And in in market conditions and an environment like this, where retention is the new growth, now retention actually becomes a selling event. You know, retention in a lot of cases used to be kind of like this freebie or routine renewal that uh, in, in many businesses was really easy to do. Uh, But now it's a selling event in and of itself, complete with complex decision making, economic buyers, business pain, ROI, all that kind of stuff. And one of the points that I would want to make is that the economic buyer, um, as defined by the first tip here, which is the person who has authority to release the funds for a renewal or an upsell or even a new business deal, typically tends to escalate when market conditions get tighter. OK, so like if you're selling to sales organizations pre-coronavirus, you probably have the VP of sales as your economic buyer. He or she can sign the check and release the funds. In tighter economic conditions, though, that person tends to move up one or two notches in the totem pole. Oftentimes, it's going to be the CFO, VP of finance. And so that that's the first thing I would take away is, number one, treat your renewals as a selling event in and of the, the in and of themselves, complete with steps, stages, exit criteria, uh, if you can, and identify where the new economic buyer sits because it's probably different than it was three or four months from now. <laughs> um, the next tip is once you've identified that person, and, and this is really worth emblazing in your memory if you ever if you want to continue to make a career over the long term uh, in B2B sales or marketing for that matter or customer success. And it is, you will get delegated to the person you sound like. And oftentimes that's gonna be both up and down. Meaning if you step into a C-level person's office and you start talking tactically, operationally, technically, feature functions, they're gonna think this person sounds like my marketing ops person, or this person sounds like my sales ops person, or this person sounds like some middle manager who does not sound like me and doesn't have the conversations I wanna be having, Therefore, I'm gonna make an introduction to that person. Now, the opposite is also true where in some cases, and this is less common, you can actually get delegated upward where you're talking with like middle management or operations. And because you sound, uh, you know, so like you have so much business acumen and it's real, you can actually get introduced to the boss in that case. So again, the reason we're kind of honing in on selling to power is we have gone have identified that as a key element of success in retaining more of our revenue is getting up to the power conversations instead of uh, dealing with the people who are um, being empowered to act on a decision that was made elsewhere. Um, the third one is the, the third and fourth tip are very related. It is credibility is the bedrock of success when selling to power. So, number one, don't do things that destroy your credibility, such as tell me about your business you know, really open-ended generic questions that C-level people don't have time for. And then the other side of that coin is do something to build credibility. And there are two very tactical things that you can do to to build credibility at the outset in a level meeting. Um, One is starting the meeting with documented success, like Nick talked about, ROI, anything like that. If you don't have that though, you can start the meeting with what I call a, here's what we heard slide. And it basically proves to that C-level executive that you've talked with a number of people in their organization and you're summarizing the challenges or the opportunities that you've learned. And if you do that right, it's like instant credibility. Um, I'll kind of breeze through number five and number six. (coughs) Number six, we'll talk about more in depth on another slide. So, you know, we've got our own section for that. Uh, But number five is the commonality between almost all c-level executives or vps or just selling to power is they're typically in their position because they're great at planning for their organizations over the long term and a key to selling to them affecting effectively or renewing them effectively or building that trusted advisor relationship is to come into the conversation with some sort of information that helps Take some of the fog off of their crystal ball that helps them predict their business. And I'm not just talking about a sales forecasting perspective, although that can be part of it. I'm talking about forecasting the entire business from revenue to what they're going to do with people to locations, anything that helps them plan for their organization over the long term. Um, if you can show up to meetings with something like that, you'll uh you'll tend to build that trusted advisor status with them and your renewals
0: and your retention will come much, much easier. Nick, I'm happy to have you back. I was worried maybe I offended you with my comment and you just left. Yeah, exactly. I'm I had to go get a,
2: I went to get a haircut. I was I was looking around outside. I didn't find anyone. Uh there's a flobee Um I may have to go with that. So um that, that home hair care machine. Uh, but I just brilliant. want to say, I, I think Chris, Chris, I I, I screenshotted this because I think these are great. And I think I, just as a CEO, I mean, I get pitched all the time by people. And you know I think that they have such a hard time uh, uh, being confident about their credibility and then being able to connect things to what I'm doing. One thing we like to say internally is um, how do you get to the point where your bullets on your slide are the things that are on their whiteboard, you know, figuratively, right? The things that they're actually organically talking about. So, you know, in our case, not like, deploy Gainsight or roll out Gainsight to your team, but like on their whiteboard is launch new SaaS product. And then Gainsight is part of launching that new SaaS product, right? So this really resonates.
3: Now, now Nick, I have to ask you on tip number one, where like I made the point that the economic buyer tends to rise a rank or two in the organization. My guess is as the CEO, you've probably seen more contracts come across your table than pre-coronavirus days that you're now required to sign off on. Whereas previously you probably didn't have to get that involved. Am I am I right in making that guess?
2: Totally. And we've seen that in our deals to our customers for sure. So like the the whatever level the economic buyer was, it's like two levels higher now. And lots of deals went to the CEO. I mean, we had deals where you know the the COO signed off, and then the CFO signed off, and then the CEO had to sign off. Um, and I think you have to know the dynamic also in a company about who really drives it. In my company, honestly, it would be the R CFO, Igor. He's the one who really has the authority. Um, of course, I can tell Igor we should do this, but some CEOs delegate that specifically to one person. And, and I think CFO is often that person.
0: From a seller's background, I know sellers, we used to want to, you wanted to almost minimize your time with a CFO. You wanted to like build an audience of people who want it. And it's like, just, just sign this. And like, we don't need to talk. I don't want to totally. bother you at all. And now sellers are like, we. and I say seller CS, post sales, like you need to, learn how to befriend the CFO and then really dig into what they care about now speaking of dms the next one that we have sam is a play which is the how to reel in a dm do you want to talk over this one or do you want me to take it for the uh the next couple slides
1: yeah happy to talk over it feel free to jump in uh because I'm, I'm just stealing something that you already wrote um There was a Gong Labs article. This was a while back uh, that our own Devin Reed helped to to write Um, and and really what it talked about is this idea that uh, You need to stay in front of these DMS, especially we talked about them being, you know, very high up there are there are a lot of things that they'll care about that are likely not involved in your day-to-day with your program manager uh, or your other stakeholders Um, So, the the article that Devin wrote was a a fantastic recommendation to to stay in front of your DM and keep them in the loop during a a deal cycle, oftentimes without having any ask whatsoever. Uh, The idea is that you're delivering value to them without an ask in return. Um, DMs, I think, love this approach because they've they've been conditioned to, and and Nick, I'm sure you can speak to this as well, they've been conditioned to Always having an ask that comes with these emails and usually it's asking for their time, which we know is super valuable and limited Uh, And and here instead with this email, they're actually getting something of value without any ask whatsoever Um, So this really helps to elevate you as as a business consultant versus just a salesperson who's looking for a deal Um, I think I, this this comes straight from Devin, but uh subconsciously this triggers a law of reciprocity, um, which really tees you up for the next time that you're you're inevitably gonna have an ask from them uh to just get a, a straight yes. Um I actually think so. Devin wrote this through the lens of of sales, but I actually think this is even more useful in a post-sales role because we need to stay in front of the DM for longer and have a, a deeper relationship there. Um so we started using this to to stay in front of them with. You know how the project is going uh, or even better if you can use data or insights uh, something that that gives them even more value um but again with without the ask and i think the the recommendation is to explicitly state that in the subject uh the subject line so that they know ahead of time
2: it's funny i literally uh, posted to our team a week ago that we need to send more emails to our um decision makers we call them above the line etl executives that aren't with no ask um that really really resonates both as a recipient of that as well as what we see in our business and i I think that um one thing that speaking as an executive i think it gives you something that you're always looking for which is information right you don't want to you don't want to give time that's definitely sam you had it right that's the hardest thing to give but what you want to get is information and so knowing what's going on is so valuable i think this is a great strategy
0: yeah, I was, was going to say, we, I created this actually like a year ago when um, I was one of the early sales reps. We moved to mid-market and enterprise so when we first segmented. It's the same thing. We realized, you know, deals were getting bigger in mid-market. There was more people involved, but it was like you said, or I think Chris, is like we were getting delegated to sales ops a lot, which were our influencers, but not our champions. And so I I created this. I was like, I'm just going to give and just keep them in the loop, but I'm not going to ask for anything. And so I wanted to throw this email template in here. I won't read it to you guys, but feel free to steal it. Bold is obviously where you need to to swap. But then the next one, what you do, is you send this once or twice, right? You work with the people you've been delegated with. And then what you do is I take away the action, no action required. And now it's next steps. So I've conditioned you, but now it's, it's time for that ask. And then really, what you do is kind of kind of what you guys were saying. You set the table. Here's what we've done. I followed your instructions. Here's what we found. But now it is time for you to get involved, and you go with this specific ask of you know what time works. So it's a little assumptive, I think. But I've actually had people post sales. Like you can do this mid sales cycle, a week or two later, they sign. They'll forward me this email and go, I actually just wanted you to know I loved this play. And it was just like, wow, no one think like you're lucky to get a thank you. You know, you close a deal. There's some thank you going on, but to like go back and say this really works was was really cool. And so yeah, we, we shared this with Chris, and glad to see it's working. And uh, and you co-signed it. All right, we've got the decision maker. We've talked about it a little bit, but we need to understand buyer roles and their interests.
1: So I think this this is was obviously super important before um, the new environment that we find ourselves in today. Uh, but but even more imperative now is really understanding uh who you're talking to uh, and what they they do and don't care about so we put together a few tips here um so knowing and catering to your audience um i think chris talked about this uh it's been a topic of conversation already um the the buyer that we're we're dealing with is different now uh we we didn't deal with the cfo as much so each of these personas that we're, we're dealing with, they, they care about different things and, and there are, are things that they just won't care about. So um, running, and I think Nick, this was in your presentation, um, making it, it generic or, or like a one size fits all, it just won't work. We have to really understand um, what it is they care about. Um, I think that comes from research, um, and also, you know, from a CS perspective, leveraging the relationships that you have with other day-to-day stakeholders to to help you get that research and learn, uh, you know, learn what it is. I think Chris said um, in at Gong, typically the person that we used to deal with um, would be the the VP of Sales or the SVP, and now oftentimes that's going up to potentially the CRO uh, and, and a VP of Sales. Um, or even a, a director of sales is going to have very different things on their the top of their list compared to a CRO. Um, so understanding when your your QBR needs to be much more focused around um, strategic and org-wide initiatives as opposed to just you know something that that's on top of a you know a sales director's list. Um, the next one is using data to craft a story uh, that that your that that again that specific audience will care about. Um, data, I think, you know, a lot of us are, are in the world where data is is super cool and it, it's really exciting. Um, but if you're only using data by itself, um, I, I think it it doesn't always land, especially when we go up the totem pole um, to these these higher level stakeholders. Um, so it's really important that that the data is related to a story um, around the bigger picture, right? So um, a common example of this, I think that that I think tends to resonate across a lot of different businesses is usage, um, especially in the SaaS space. Uh, usage is is somewhat important, but in a in a bubble by itself, um, it's it's not enough, um, right? It, it's not that thing that gives us ROI. It's not. It doesn't directly contribute to you know the value that they're getting from the service. Um, so i think there are two ways that you can do this one is in the world of gong you can say something like hey all of your aes are using gong and they're listening to calls which is fine but it's not super valuable Um, instead i think the the way that we've uh that that we've started doing it is look one of your goals was to increase peer-to-peer coaching so that managers can save time um, and here's some data that shows a massive increase in AEs listening and commenting on other AEs calls. So using data to craft a story, um, Nick, to your point, that's on the whiteboard in their office that they care about, um, is is much, much more
3: impactful.
0: That's such a uh, good point, Sam. I I know I've done that before where it's like, here's this data. And, you know, you're presenting to someone like Nick and you're just like, what do you yeah, think? Yeah, exactly. So and what? Like, yeah. Oh, oh, you're done talking. What does this mean? Right? And it's like, I think a lot of, I say sellers, like customer facing folks, they they kind of know the story sometimes, but they think the data will speak for itself. Right. But it's it's key, like you said, to tie those to those leading indicators of success or the success criteria you've already set up. So uh, that's a big takeaway for me. I had to learn the hard way because I, I did this long before this webinar happened, but once you can start to tie those, you get a lot of nods and like, okay, this makes a lot, a lot of sense and meetings go a lot smoother. And then I feel like it asks more questions and like constructive question, right? Of like getting them in the right direction versus like the type of question where they're just like, you know, they're squinty-eyed and they're like, I don't understand what we're doing here. So that's a great point.
1: Yeah, I, I think we, we've all done it and we learned the hard way as well. Um, <laughs> the next one is don't just run your process. Um, I think this this is perhaps related to, to what we just talked about. Um, I think oftentimes this can give CSMs uh, and, and post-sale teams a bit of a bad name. Um, you know, oftentimes that's what makes it really challenging when we reach out to strategic stakeholders to to set up a QBR is they, they've, they've been used to QBRs where, you know, we're very clearly just checking boxes and there's very low value for them. Um, I've been guilty of this for sure in the past. So it, if it comes across that way and it's not a shared agenda where it's not um, it's not very clear what is the value that your your audience is getting. Um, it, it's gonna be extremely challenging to get them back on another QBR and it's called a QBR for a reason. It's not a one-time thing. Um, so I think it needs to feel like an actual fluid conversation and in my opinion, sometimes that means that the next slide in your deck Um, might not be where the conversation leads. So finding a a healthy balance between keeping it structured and driving the agenda, but also letting it be organic and and going with the conversation. Um, Next one is recognizing what's important and unimportant right now. So we've talked a lot about what's important and and perhaps unimportant to the different um, buyer personas. Um, But I think the other factor that's so apparent here today is, is what's going on right now. Um, the most obvious example of this is you know when when Covid happened, um everything changed. and and even prior to Covid, you know, you've got the market changes, priorities change. things are constantly changing. So to just pick up and say, uh, hey, three three months ago, I know you really cared about onboarding and you're scaling all of your teams. um, it's gonna come off a little tone deaf if we just pick up right where we left off and don't take the time to really to really state, you know, how are you doing right now? What what has changed? Um, I think the thing that I think about is um, oftentimes there's a bit of a different voice that we start using with um, with our, you know, in business, in, in our job. But if we think about when we call our friends and family, uh, the the very first thing that we do is say, hey, how are you doing with all of this going on, right? And I, I think that it's so important to do that, not just in in the small talk when you start these conversations, but to recognize um, what has changed and what's the impact to their business and and how do we pivot the conversation to really address that? Last one is, hopefully goes without saying, but we have to tell them something that they don't already know. Um, I think, you know, for, for QBRs, this is super valuable for any post-sale team. So for my team, for Chris's team, um, for, for the the CS and post-sale team at, uh, at Gainsight, Um, QBRs are are imperative and it's something that that we need to do we get so much value there Um, but if if our stakeholders don't leave regardless of who the stakeholder is but even more important the higher up we go if they don't leave with something they don't already know then again it's gonna feel like we're checking boxes it's gonna be difficult to get them to to show up again Um, so I think I, I tend to work with my team on when we're prepping for the QBR, constantly ask yourself, um, what is the value that they'll get from this? And if we're if we're unsure or if it's really just something that we need, then we need it to be a marriage of both.
0: Nick or Sam, anything you want to add about effective QBRs before we move to the next tip? Yeah. Yeah, uh, this is an awesome list, Sam. It's definitely
2: worth a blog post. Well done. And I... I wrote something like about a year ago called putting the E back into EBR. So some people call them EBR, executive business review, but often the executives don't show up, right? And that ties to what you said, Sam, But you, you do an ineffective QBR and the next time you're not going to get any of your executives there. The uh, three tactical things I'd add in that, that I found work and I've seen clients do it, we do it. Number one is really managing the time. Well, executives are super busy, right? And also like, honestly, they're impatient. Um, that's often uh, the persona. And so I think starting very quickly, making sure you don't have issues on the meeting. Uh, one thing we do, we introduce our whole team, one person introduces the whole team. When you spend 15 minutes doing the intros on both sides out of a you know 45 minute or hour meeting, big waste of time. Another tactical time thing we do is we, um, sometimes we'll take the, the, let's say it's a 90 minute QBR and make the, f- the first 30 minutes the executive session. And so the executives from both sides join and then they both leave and then the next hour is a working session. So. The the second kind of thing we've seen people do and we we try to do ourselves is try to make the client's uh, stakeholders look good. So we often will have the client present part of the QBR so that the day to day person we work with present what they're doing alongside us. So rather than it being our presentation, it's a joint presentation. That's really, really effective. And then honestly, they want to prep with you and they give you a lot more intel. And then the third thing, I think, going back to what Sam said, is leaving with information and thinking about what, is it, what kind of information does an executive want? And I think if you looked at most executives, there's a, a set of questions they have. Um, what's my competition doing that I should be doing? That's a very common question, right? So, you know, how is my competition using Gong, or how are the companies using Gong that I could be using better? What is my team not doing? This is a delicate one. You have to do it in the right way. But what should my team be doing differently, right? Like, honestly, if I was doing QBRs with you, Sam, about Gong, we love Gong. We use GameSite, Gong all the time at Gainsight. I'd want to know what's my team not doing that I should be doing? And you have to answer that question delicately if my team's in the room with me. Right. But I want to, I want to know what more we can be doing. So I think those three things are being really mindful of time, making your client day-to-day person a hero, and then making sure the executive leaves with the information that really helps them. Those are my thoughts.
1: Those are good ones. I'm going to steal some of those as well.
2: I'm stealing that's yours too. So that's all good.
0: <laughs> all right. That's great. I think number three, Chris, if I remember correctly, this is yours and you had a good idea when we were prepping, which is it's really important to frame the challenges to be at a strategic level, which I think touches on, you know, what Sam and Nick were just saying, right? Which is the executive mind frame. What do they care about? Do you want to talk to us a little bit about this? Yeah, I I th- this goes back
3: to one of the points I made earlier, which is you get delegated to the person you sound like. And if you're talking about like non-strategic problems, you're gonna get delegated to that person. And, and there are two approaches to anchor your relationship to a more strategic issue that a, a senior leader is going to care about. One is simply finding it, you know, it's like almost like product market fit, but to a more strategic problem. And so an example of that, like if I was selling Gong to, to Nick, instead of framing it as like a coaching tool, which is still valuable, but something more like sales managers are gonna care about, I would frame it to him as like market intelligence. Like understand what your competitors are doing because that's something that's already go- going through his head. And so you can take your same solution and find a more um, staturized problem. Is that even a word? I think I may have just made up a word. But but the second one in the in the much more straightforward version is what I call peeling back the onion. And it's basically not taking what your customers say at face value about what they're actually cha- their challenges are. And really digging deep to find the strategic issue. So I'll just illustrate that with a story. <clears throat> um, one of my reps was talking to a VP of sales a few weeks ago, and he asked his like typical discovery con- or question, like, "What are some of the you know key challenges that you're facing right now?" And the guy was like, uh, "We need to get like much better at coaching." And if he stopped there, now like the whole relationship is coaching, and we we get that we get punted to sales enablement and like frontline sellers. But, but my my rep like backs up for a second and he goes, all right, so that, that's great. Thanks for sharing that with me. But when you say we're focused on coaching, that sounds like a solution, not a problem. like Coaching is a solution. And so I'm curious to understand what the executive level conversation sounded like when you all decided that this was a priority for your company and what challenges you were trying to address by making coaching a focus. And the guy was like, well, our demo to close rates for a new product that we just launched have dipped from 27% to 22%. So we've got a couple challenges there. One is close rates, but it's also a product that is designed to uh, capture a new segment of the market th- that we have not captured yet and that's totally open. And it's like, oh man, now this is the type of conversation that's happening in the boardroom. Like, how do we capture a new piece of the market? And, and right. because back the onion. He didn't say, you know, go back to the spreadsheet spreadsheet and say, okay, VP of sales at X company cares about coaching, and he pushed that person a little bit to understand like what's beneath the surface. Now we've created a relationship uh, that can be more sustainable because it's an anchored. It's anchored to an issue that's um, happening in executive
0: level conversations already within that customer company. I love it. That's so good. The difference between renewal and new deal positioning.
3: This one, I'll be pretty quick here, but I learned this from a mutual friend of of Nick and and mine, which is Tim Reister over at Corporate Visions. Uh, He wrote this exceptional book that I would recommend everybody read called The Expansion Sale. And he is known for like his behavioral economics theories. Like he's really good at embedding like deep psychology into into sales technique. And he makes the point uh, of loss aversion and how you can play to somebody's uh, sense of loss when getting certain deals done. And his point is when you're trying to acquire a new customer, your job as a seller is to make their status quo seem incredibly painful. Like you want to disrupt their status quo because you or your solution represent change. And that's how you get deals done when you bring in new customers. The exact opposite, If you're trying to renew customers, you're actually the status quo now. They've been using you for a year or two years or three years. And so if you come in with like a disruptive message that would work for acquiring new customers, it actually kind of mucks with their psychology a little bit and makes them open to potentially changing in an entirely new direction. So and keep in mind, you don't want them to change at all. Like at the most, you want them to increase spend a little bit. Um, And and so I, I would recommend for like. Further information on this theory that you read the book, but the point is to actually reinforce the customer's status quo. And so, you know, I know we used usage data as not the greatest, greatest example, but it's an example here, so I'll just use it. A message might sound like, now, you know, Nick, you're, you're coming up on your renewal with Gong in about two months here, and I just want to call out a few things. The first thing is we looked at some of our stats, and your close rates have gone up 5%. And we also looked at all the usage uh, on your team. And it turns out 118% of your team uh, are are listening to two calls every single week, meaning people non-licensed for Gong are doing this. And I just want to make a point that it took us about 10 months to get to that point. Uh, There was a lot of work from your frontline managers and enablement team. And so we're at a really critical point in our journey where we keep doing what we're doing. And if we make any dramatic changes right now, it could erase a lot of this momentum. So now we're taking some of the stats and we're like using it to really embed uh, the, the buyer back into
0: the status quo in our favor in this case. That's great. That's good stuff. All right. We're going to get to the last one here. Nick, I'm gonna, I know you have to jet a little bit sooner, so I'd love to hear from you first. The last thing we we're talking about is how to segment your customer base for risk and opportunity, right? Which is kind of like using some of these things to kind of surface where you should spend your time and how. So I'll, I'll let you take it away from here.
2: Yeah, I totally. I mean, I think this is sort of like motherhood and apple pie of customer success that we all we all know that this is the core part of what you need to do between CS and account management. I think that pre COVID, this is pretty straightforward. You look at which accounts have uh, achieved enough value and have the level of adoption that you know makes them set up for expansion. You look at the white space in those accounts, and you have a different strategy for those accounts versus the ones at risk. Um, and in Gainsight, just to make that tangible. We, when we look at risk and, and value, we use a framework we call D-E-A-R, deployment, engagement, adoption, ROI. That's what our customer success team essentially is charged with driving, right? So get Gainsight deployed, get it adopted, make sure we have an engagement with the right executive contacts, and have we demonstrated business value. And we have a whole process for doing all those, and we automate all that and track it all. And then when somebody has a good DEER score, that's a good scenario to drive expansion. But um, obviously now with COVID-19, you have to add add, add that variable in of how is that business doing? Are they in a world of expansion? And probably some of you have heard me speak before about our methodology of putting customers into three buckets, the companies that are negatively affected by COVID-19, the ones that are neutrally affected and positively affected. And so most of your expansion is going to come from bucket two and three. Um, That's pretty straightforward. Um, So I think that 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 kind of additional level of segmentation is something a lot of companies have had to add in. And to take those companies that are getting a lot of value and are actually doing pretty well, or at least not doing terribly, and try to put more of your energy around those. The last thing I'd say, though, is um, this is heretical for a customer success person to say this, but um, you can also expand customers that aren't getting a lot of value. Um, And what's interesting is sometimes expansion is the key to getting a lot of value because we all know companies that bought solutions in a very small way didn't commit and therefore actually never got value. It's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, Chris, using your example, we bought Gong.io in a very tactical way for just a small team and we never paid attention to it. So maybe the way for me to get more value from Gong is to actually do an enterprise-wide deal and really commit to it. So I do think that you can actually look at some of those low-adopting, low-value customers and say, maybe we just need to go binary. Either we're going to do something big with you or it probably doesn't make sense to keep using us. You know, And I think Sometimes you have to be pretty bold to do that, but actually that can sometimes work out in your favor and I think the clients appreciate the honesty.
1: I think just uh, one thing that uh, that we talked about in in prepping here that I think both of uh, both Gong and Gainsight uh, did in the in light of COVID is um is using additional I think both of our companies are pretty data driven. Um, but I think you know when when our our world changed everyone was trying to Get in front of this to be more proactive versus reactive. Um, and one of the things that that we did, that I think Kinsay did as well, is is really using additional data that that we didn't leverage in the same way before um, to to identify potential risks. So one of those for us were you know we're, we're not we haven't been around for for ten years, so we haven't started doing analysis around vertical yet. But but as it turns out, um, companies affected in different verticals. Um, it's been very different um, depending on which vertical you're looking at in the past three months. So um, getting getting in front of that and and using that data that we already had uh, in our CRM to 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 try and um, understand you know what what could this look like and and what might it mean before it actually comes to fruition? So obviously, some of our customers in you know in the restaurant space, you know we assume that they're impacted more than others. Uh, and instead of waiting for that to inevitably come across the CSM's desk, can we create dashboards and, and insights for them to, to really get in front of that and, and take a, a much more proactive approach?
3: I feel like there's too much to recap for me,
0: for me to be able to do. There's a lot there. I, I can recap a couple things. So, what if, what if you, how about we go around the horn and recap your favorite takeaway? How about that? And people can steal this. This is going to get sent. We're going to send the recording and the deck. Chris, what was your favorite takeaway? Uh,
3: I, I like, it, it's really simple, but I liked Nick's point about putting the E back in EBR and like all of the sub bullet points that went underneath that, because it, it's totally true. It's like, we call them EBRs and, and in so many cases the E doesn't even show up to the meeting. And so the tips and tactics that he shared to, to make sure that E is staying on the front end of that acronym were uh, good stuff.
0: There you go, Sam, favorite takeaway?
1: I, I'll go back to the beginning. I think Nick's comment that uh, retention is a selling event. Uh, I think oftentimes CSMs, um, you know, we put CSMs in a different bucket from from sales minded folks, but really it's all the same, and and we're constantly selling, and and even more so now. We we nothing is nothing is for sure, uh, and you know we have to we can't have cool value. It has to be real value. So just making sure that that's continuous in our process with customers.
0: Nick, you know I'm coming for you.
2: <laughs> yeah, I got it. No, I love it. This honestly I learned as much as I presented here. This is fabulous, Chris. Sam, I mean, so great hearing what you shared. I think the theme that shows up for me is really in this world of more pressure, executive buyers are more uh, important in decision making and you just have to think about them differently. I think that's the takeaway. You can't Sam said you can't just run your process like a checklist, right? Uh Chris, I thought your comment about uh not just going to the executive buyer when you need something and kind of nurturing them along the way i think that everyone can learn a lot more about how to treat that executive buyer differently and they're just way more important now so it's probably the most important thing you can work on if you're a CSM or if you're an account manager is your ability to nurture and manage these executive buyers
0: and there you have it folks there's your recap from our speakers thank you chris nick and sam for joining So thank you all for joining. Be on the lookout for that email. And thanks again to our awesome speakers. We appreciate you. Did you like today's episode? Subscribe now so next week's episode will be waiting for you on Monday.
1: And if you really like the podcast, please leave a review. Five-star reviews go a long way to help get the word out there.
0: And if you're not ready to give a five, check out another episode and see if we've won you over by then.
1: And if you have any feedback or you want us to interview one of your favorite revenue leaders, just email us at reveal at gong.io.